I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. The State Parliament of Victoria dismissed the former South Gippsland Shire Council with reports citing a failure of governance. Julie Eisenbeis has been appointed as Chair of Administrators at the Council. We look at the steps taken toward the election of a new council in October 2021, including elements of the role that they don't normally tell you about. Julie Eisenbeis, welcome. Thank you for talking with us today. I want to talk about shortly what happened at South Gippsland to cause you to be appointed to that role and a little bit about the attributes of a council more generally. But before we go there, I just wonder, can we talk about organisations and what's your view of what an effectively running organisation might look like? Any effective organisation is usually where the board is working really well with the CEO to achieve their strategic outcomes. And I think that when you're in a council, it's exactly the same. The council is there to work with the CEO, who will be working with the staff and directing the staff. But that organisation means that everyone has to share the strategic direction. So then talking about the council being able to convey its strategic position and work with the staff to achieve it. So I think that's the important part of any organisation is that you are very much collaborative partners. So much to unpack in what you've just said there, Julie, around that kind of tension between the politics of being on a council and I guess the strategy of being on a board, but effectively the board filling that role. And you've also touched a little accountabilities, the accountability of the council versus the accountability of the CEO. What If we unpack that a bit further, what does that look like for you? How do you see the relationship between the council and the CEO? I see the most important role that any council has is to appoint their CEO and to set the KPIs of that CEO and then to measure them. And that in itself should bring together a good relationship because if the CEO understands what their role is in rolling out the strategy, then the council is quite confident being able to do it. The CEO, of course, then has the role of ensuring that the staff have an understanding of what that strategy is and how they can then implement it and take it forward. So I don't see it as a tiered hierarchy system. I see it more as a collaborative system. You must work together with the staff within the organisation, directly through the CEO, of course. I'm hearing something around sort of, let me know if I verbal you, but not too close, not too far apart, trust, but still retaining accountability. Absolute trust is really, really important. But monitoring, accountability, you can't just assume that everything's going to be done. So you do ask for reporting, you ask for solid reporting with good KPIs in there. So that's the really important part of any local government now is the reporting back to council about the achievements. The local government inspectorate thought that the issue was serious enough in February 2019 to write a report about council's management of the CEO's accountability, which obviously would presume that some aren't doing it especially well. What were your takeouts from reading that document? I think very much part of that is that 
councils have to be very clear to their CEO about what their objectives are going to be. It's got to be clear and it's got to be a joint understanding of what they are. It's not much good writing things on a piece of paper if the CEO has not really picked up on what the issue is. They have to be defined. They have to be very clear so the CEO knows their job. That gives you the opportunity then to monitor whether the CEO is achieving their KPIs. Yeah, so I'm not hearing anything from you that sort of moves away from that ultimate accountability of the CEO to the council, but you're talking a bit about structure and, and I guess, Absolutely. a fairness. Absolutely, and I think that's why those sets of KPIs have to be very tight and everyone has to agree that they are achievable is one thing because you can set KPIs that are just definitely not achievable. So you need to set KPIs that are achievable they are received well by the CEO, the CEO is clear on the understanding of them. And if they're not, then you need to have some independence to help you to get through that position to, to make sure that you've got them set very clearly. Yeah. And it needs to be a collaboration. It, it won't work if it's just the council saying these are the things we need to have done when the CEO knows what's got to be done within the organisation as well. So there's a bit of upward Think, you know, upward thinking where they must come to you with particular tasks that they believe need to be done as well. Well, I presume, Julie, that given that the councillors are quite deliberately in the Act over many years now required to not engage too deeply in the organisation, that there is a strong element of trust required in the advice from the CEO about what needs to be done to build capacity. Absolutely. And that discussion needs to happen when they're setting KPIs. It's, it's one about what do you think needs to happen in this organisation to make this organisation function better and to relate to the customers better? There's a big, that's, that's a big task for any CEO. Councils get thumped every now and again, or every night probably, but if they're able to actually look at the way in which things need to be done within that organisation, we'll make the council look better. Yeah, and it goes to culture, doesn't it, I suppose? And I saw a piece of research, and I can't think who wrote it, around the importance of the council staff being able to engage with the community and, and almost the emotional input required in every transaction with community. And presumably that's not going to happen if the culture is not strong. No, that was one actually the first tasks that we looked at when we moved in as administrators was the culture of the organisation and how to help the staff through that process of some cultural change. Every, every now and again, every organisation needs to tweak its cultural change. That is one of our um, strategic objectives to look at that. And that, that works two ways. It's also to ask our community to also have some sort of cultural change as well, to accept some of the things that do have to happen that do cause inconvenience. And that happens in every council too. Absolutely. And to deal with it maturely is really important. If we're talking about South Gippsland Shire, what's the geographic area, Julie? The geographic area is extraordinarily large. It goes from Nyora, which is near Lang Lang, and it goes all the way down to Wilson's Promontory and across to Merbin North to the coast as well. We take in, in fact, down there, it's one of my claims to fame, is there's 30,000 residents in uh, South Gippsland. In fact, we welcomed our 30,000th person just recently. Uh, but more importantly, we have enough roads to run from Melbourne to Port Augusta in South Australia. Now, that in itself puts a lot of challenge in, but, of course, our roads are not on flat country. 
We have the Strezlecki Ranges, absolutely beautiful country down there and extraordinary dairy country. So it really is a beautiful area to be able to work in and it's been such a privilege to be down there. Julie, what happened at South Gippsland is well documented and it's not our intention today to revisit that in to greater extent. But let's just say, again, to provide context, that what is documented is that there was a blurring of the lines between the role of the council and the role of the CEO, that the culture wasn't what it should be, and that led to a series of actions by government. In March 2019, a monitor, Peter Stevenson, who had been appointed under Section 223 CA of the Local Government Act, submitted his report to the minister. In May 2019, as I understand, the minister appointed a commission of inquiry into South Gippsland Shire under Section 209 of the Act. And in that case, the commission was chaired by his honour, Frank Vincent, a retired Supreme Court judge. Pretty serious stuff. Can you talk us through the process once the report of the commission had been submitted to the minister? I believe, and I could only say that I believe the Minister makes a recommendation to the Parliament and two Houses of Parliament need to vote on it. So it's very serious. It doesn't happen very often that a council gets dismissed. Uh, it's very infrequent. Once a council is dismissed, an uh, administrator is appointed. I was appointed to go in and uh, work with the council immediately and then two other administrators joined me uh, within about six weeks. You walk in the door and nobody knows what to do with an administrator. It's not something they've ever seen. <laughs> so it's a bit of a shock to any organisation, quite frankly. So uh, there you are. What do we do with this person? So it's quite quite a shock to the organisation to rethink its own culture immediately. Yeah, and it's a point that's well made, Julie, that it requires the passage of legislation. So, you know, the fact that there is a special piece of South Gippsland Shire Council amendment to the Local Government Act that has led to this appointment. Yes. Yes, there is. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, just quickly without dwelling on you do have a, a strong background in local government and boards more generally. What was, What does that yes. look like? Yes. Um, well, I have been a councillor and a mayor in the city of Manningham um, quite a number of years ago now. I'm also a commissioner on the Victorian Local Government Grants Commission. Uh, there's only three commissioners on that, and I still serve on that. And that has given me a great opportunity to visit the 79 councils around the state, and uh, what a privilege to be able to do that. It gives me an enormous amount of experience in looking at what the challenges are in every single council. Sometimes they all seem the same, and other times they all seem very different. So that's local government. Uh, yes, I have served on a number of boards at TAFEs. I've served on school boards. I've, I have worked in the corporate services as the executive director at RMIT. That was for uh, all of their global business development. So it was their offshore and onshore business development of the university. At the moment, that would be in a very different position, of course, with COVID, as is everything else. Yeah, we won't say there, Julie, but that role for the Victorian Grants Commission, for anyone who's not aware, and correct me if I'm wrong, so that's the body that decides how the state of Victoria will distribute yes. the share of federal income tax or pay-as-you-go to local councils in Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and most councillors refer to it as the federal assistance grants. So 
when you and the team of administrators sat down for, the, for your first few meetings, what was the task that you mapped out? Well, we sat down together with the acting CEO and the three directors and talked about what sort of things were the high priorities at the time within the, within the community. We didn't want to drop the ball on the projects that were already happening. So it was quite critical that we kept everything ticking along. So we considered that that was one of our major tasks to move forward. The next thing was to appoint a CEO because we had also lost the CEO. So it was to make that appointment and to move that along. We wanted to be in the organisation a few months to see what the culture was like, what sort of CEO was going to be the best fit. Quite critical, you can bring in the very best CEO in the world, but if it's not the good fit, I suggest to you that that wouldn't work too well either. So you've got to sort of look for what might be appropriate. So we wanted a few months to have a look at that. We then wanted to set out a council, a new sort of council plan, amended council plan for want of a better word, and to start some serious community engagement and find out from the community what their expectations were. And that's quite prescient really given what's happened with the 2020 Local Government Act and you've presumably positioned reasonably well in a COVID environment to move through that sort of heightened strategic role for councillors? COVID has been quite a, well, it's been a barrier for everybody, there's no doubt, but when you are new administrators into an organisation and suddenly you're told that you're not going to be able to see people face to face, it's been a bigger challenge for us because we're not drawn from the local community. We come with no preconceived ideas about that. So mm. Indeed, that's a really, that is challenging for us and it has been. So we've spent an awful lot of time on Zoom meetings, as has everyone, and lots and lots of phone calls because people can't always Zoom. So we've spent a lot of time trying to do that. Yep, yep. Julie, one of your tasks is in relation to the return of the council that in October yes. this year, 2021, there will be an election for the return of the elected councillors. What are some of the things when someone's thinking about standing for council that no one tells you about? A difficult uh, I'm so excited to know that democracy is coming back to South Gippsland. I think it's just wonderful. And I think we're well placed now to bring in the new councillors and that, that will be fantastic. I think the things that people have got to think about is, number one, there is a big time management issue. We'll put that to the side. But also coming in with fixed ideas about what you think you're going to be able to do. You need to understand very clearly that uh, there will be conflicts within your own mind, your own ethical position on things. There will be conflicts and you have to actually consider things very carefully and you need to ensure that you're going to read the reports that are provided to you by the council officers. And if you haven't got the report you want, then you need to be asking for more detail in that. And you do all of that via the CEO. There's interaction a with the staff needs to be through the CEO all the time. And I emphasise that greatly. It does not mean that the councillors get around and have a talk to junior officers. It's just totally inappropriate. The CEO is the one who's got the KPIs and they will direct the staff. So let's be clear on that point. That would be, and in certain cases, a most egregious offence against the Local Government Act for councillors to be directing council staff in the performance of their duties, which is a sort of a yeah. more hard-nosed way of what you described as respecting uh, accountabilities before. Absolutely. There is a law now that says that you can't do that. Julie, what you mentioned before uh, raises a really interesting question because the community do expect councillors to be advocates, but at the same time, 
councillors need to keep an open mind on the information that's going to come before them. How is that tension to be managed? That tension is managed sometimes on a very personal level because you can have colleagues or friends outside of council or supporters who are urging you to go one way and yet you have a report that's very clearly indicating that that's not necessarily the best way to go. And that can be very difficult for a councillor because very often they've come in with one thought, but once they've read the background material on something, got the actual officer's report on it, considered it carefully, then they've got to make a decision. And that that is often one of the challenges of being a councillor. Yeah. There's a nicety of something you mentioned just before, Julie, and I've run the risk of putting words in your mouth, but you, you said something about councillors seeking the information they need from officers' reports. And I am presuming that's not telling the CEO what recommendation to put in the reports. What did you mean by that? What I mean is sometimes you might get statistics on something and it might be that there might be a question about some sort of activity that's going on. Uh, Unless you understand how many people might be using a sporting ground or how many people are using a park, the council, if you're not prepared to ask for some of those statistics, you may get something that won't give you the opportunity to make the decision with a clear mind. So sometimes you might say, I'd really like to know more about that and and ask for the statistics on use of something. And that could be a public building, it could be a park or whatever. Please, can I have some statistics? That is quite okay for a councillor to ask that. And it would be done via your council group or via your CEO to say, I need more detail on something. And along with the heightened sort of strategic responsibility in the 2020 Local Government Act, there's also a greater obligation for councillors to act on behalf of the, I suppose, the wider community, those people who don't normally have a pathway to be heard at the council. What's that meant for you at the moment and going into the future? Well, obviously, with COVID, it's been a bit of a struggle because we have had to use lots and lots of phone calls and lots of emails lots of chats with people on Zoom and whatever, but it enables you to then get the data from people. It may be data that you really need to go and then um, pursue a little bit further. But it's really important that the community gets that voice, that they can be heard, that they can come to you with issues, and then it's your job to actually advocate for them. It's very much part of the role. But it's all done through procedure. It should not be done ad hoc. You know, somebody's approached me about this, you know, let's do it. That's definitely not the right way. And there's lots of policies, um, particularly, well, I know that we've been working on policies ever since we've been in South Gippsland to tighten everything up a bit, just to make sure that there is strict guidelines for councillors about the way they work, the way they behave, how they manage their own conflicts of interest, how they work with the staff. They're all written down. It's all divulge very transparent. We go through consultation processes on many of the the external policies. The community has the opportunity to look up any of those policies for every council that they're they're involved with. And you've adopted a public transparency policy along the way too, Julie. (laughs) And a policy on policies. (laughs) Which sounds a bit naff, but absolutely that's really important so people understand the context that that sits in. I want to talk about two things, and you touched on conflict of interest, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But one area where I think there is a bit of a disconnect between what many members of the community might think and the role of the councillor is in the town planning space. How do councillors navigate that area where 
there's an element of politics in it, but fundamentally they're acting as a responsible authority under under a Planning and Environment Act. Hmm. I think you mentioned it right then and there. There is an act. <laughs> you cannot you cannot um, willy nilly decide on planning issues. They are strictly governed. They are um, procedural, and the acts are there to protect both the council and, of course, developer or you know the homeowner or whatever. That's why those policies are there. So it is very procedural. Yes, you do get lobbied by people. You do get people asking for your advocacy. And it's quite appropriate to use advocacy to find out more detail about why something is being done. Mm. Certainly, it's under the Act that those planning schemes be followed very strictly. You talked a bit about culture earlier, Julia, and presumably an organisation where the leadership willfully doesn't follow legislation is going to have a problem with culture. I think uh, a lot of the new Act enables more clearly a council staff to understand where their role sits too, regarding particularly engagement, the way in which their council will be operating with them. So that always, when I refer to council, I'm always talking about two parts of the council, the officers and the councillors, but I talk about it in one because I think that's how they should be working. It's the organisation and, and, and an appropriate level of tension mm and cooperation. Just one thing to finish on this topic, Julie, in that file called Things They Don't Tell Aspiring Councillors, conflict of interest is a real exposure to any councillor because no one necessarily rings a bell when you've got a conflict. Um, what would be your advice to someone uh, thinking about standing for council in terms of managing conflicts of interest under the Local Government Act? Well, certainly you do make your declarations every six months. You make declarations of any particular ownings that you have. That's quite clear in the Act that you do that. My own personal thing is winning doubt declare, always. And that can come down to, you know, going out to dinner with somebody, you declare it. You're going out for a cup of coffee. I always write it down, you know. If you, you will get a policy within your council that tells you how to perform with conflict of interest. And those are getting tighter and tighter so that a declaration is made. You have to be very careful, of course, that you don't just create paperwork for paperwork. You need to have a good system that just allows you to do that sort of thing very quickly if you're going to have a meal with, you know, and let me say as simply as a Rotary Club or whatever, you've had a meal, you might declare it. Yeah. And so when in doubt, declare. So it starts with the transparency and the openness about Absolutely. the relationship. Julie, one of the things that people don't tell aspiring counsellors is how they should be managing their conflicts of interest. What would be your sort of guidance and advice? Conflict of interest, there will always be a policy within the council that will guide the counsellors. It will be stricter in some than others, but this is all according to the Act to ensure that counsellors are declaring when they have a conflict of interest. And there are two sorts, the perceived conflict of interest and then the direct conflict of interest. The perceived is sometimes a little harder. Uh, direct conflict of interest is very much declaring if you've been out for dinner with somebody and somebody's paid for it or whatever and you declare it. There's, there's a process to do all of that. When it's perceived, then uh, the councillor can sometimes feel a little bit conflicted. My issue is... When in doubt, declare. When in doubt, don't vote on it. Walk out of the room, declare your interest if you feel that you have an interest that needs to be declared. 
So you've got the one the one instance where you might be able to declare something where somebody gave you a bottle of wine or whatever it might be, and then it goes into the coffers of the council. It doesn't necessarily mean that you would keep that. So you would declare it and it's gone. But if you've actually got an an ethical or perceived conflict of interest, you need to consider that. You need to seek some advice sometimes. And I have seen that done with some some councillors have asked the CEO to seek some legal advice on a consideration that they have. And that's the correct way to go about it. Absolutely. And you do that often enough and then that that boundary between what's a conflict and what's not a conflict Absolutely. becomes much yes. clearer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, the sound advice about just declaring if in doubt. Well, mm. Have to agree with that, Julie. What's going to happen between now and October in terms of the work of the CEO, how can the CEO be supported to build a resilient organisation? Because there will be a change for the staff having an elected council compared with the administrators. I think uh, you're right, there is. There's a lot of planning now going on already, getting ready for our councillors. We've already got our budget out for consideration, our draft budget. We'll hear from residents, obviously, on the submissions and then the budget will be approved in June. But meanwhile, one of our top priorities is bringing in the new council to make sure that everything's aligned for them so that as they come in, they're not overwhelmed with paperwork, which can traditionally be a way in which it can be a real turnoff for a lot of new councillors. To enable them to start to form the vision for the new council is going to be really important. So there's a lot of work now going on for providing an orientation program, if you like, That will be assisted by some of the external bodies that will come in to assist the councillors in that process. But it's very exciting. I mean, there's also, of course, the candidate training sessions that will all be occurring leading up to the election. They're run by the VEC. Any time that I'm asked or the CEO is asked at the moment to go and talk to a group about becoming a councillor, we're very delighted to be able to do that and to give people answer their questions about the concerns. And we'll probably have a... Well, we really do have a frequently asked question list of prospective councillors. Yeah, so they're coming through. Julie, the councils run a community leadership program. I understand the second yeah. cohort um, will be starting shortly. What's the thinking behind behind that program? The thinking behind it was that we were asked to do that when we actually came in was to set up a, a community leadership program. It's not about recruiting councillors. It's very much about ensuring that the community gets strong leadership so it might be that some of the people say, well, look, I want to be, you know, the president of the football club and lead the football club into, you know, its first premiership for a while or whatever it might be. Leaders in the community is so important. If they're going to be the chair of kindergarten, that's invariably where your councillor pool might end up coming from in years to come, is from people who take up other leadership roles in the community. So it was to give them a great deal of support in their leadership roles. Some of them are already in leadership roles and to enable them to grow in that so that your community gets stronger and they're able to support their councillors as well. Some may or may not choose to be councillors, I do not know. So the main part is it's building a stronger leadership community. What a great legacy to have to really build the good governance capacity of community groups right through the South Gippsland Shire. Oh, that's right. We've really focused on that sort of thing. So our governance procedures are very much being tightened. All our policies are being tightened. We put up a good governance framework. 
we relate every officer's report coming to us relates to that framework as well so that we've actually uh, put in place really strong procedures. So somebody coming into council, whoever that may be, can be confident that there's procedures in place to work through any council matter that might be on the table. And some of them are challenging. In the time between now and October and maybe beyond, what does success look like for you? Success for me looks like a really good, strong council coming back so that by about June next year when the budget goes through again, you can say, wow, they've set a great vision, they've approved a great budget, they're moving forward. And to me, that would be leaving the legacy that we wanted to was a really good council that works really, really well with the office, very well with the CEO, so that we can actually see that they're achieving They're not spending all their time debating on a political level that they're actually using data and facts to make good, strong decisions for their community. That's a great legacy. Julie Eisenbeis, thanks for talking today. Cheers. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.